You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. Well, we're continuing our Luke series this morning. And last week, Justin did an awesome job of kind of walking us through the latter part of Luke 15, where we hear this parable of the prodigal son. And what we learned is that both sons were lost. Because if we try to live by our own worth and not his, we will always be lost. And today, we're talking money. That's exactly the response I thought I'd get. See, when we talk money, many of us, you go, let's go, right? Let's talk money. Let's talk saving. Let's talk investing. Let's talk how we can manage this thing to the best of our abilities. And others of you are out there thinking like, ah, I don't even want to think about my money. Like, I have to deal with that again. I don't want to hear anything on money. And those are typically the two responses uh, that you typically get when, it, when, when money comes up, right? And if you're in the first group and you're hoping for this sermon on how you should invest and how you should manage your wealth to get more wealth, you can go listen to Dave Ramsey. I think he's yelling at someone right now. Go listen to him. And if you're in the other group and you're thinking, yo, money's stressful. I don't want to think about it. I'd rather just keep doing what I'm doing. I want to invite you this morning, whether you're in the first group or the second group, Jesus has something to say about money. And so the way in which we think about money should be informed by scriptures. And in today's passage, Jesus is going to invite us to think about how we should steward our wealth and possessions in light of his kingdom and the life to come. In 1906, a young woman by the name Elizabeth Maggie invented a game. And this game was named the Landlord's Game. And their inspiration and hope for this game was to show a practical demonstration of their present system for land grabbing with all its usual outcomes and consequences. However, this game wouldn't be patented until 1935, where it would change the world forever. In a historic moment for the history of mankind, Monopoly was born. Probably one of the most iconic games to ever be made. However, probably one of the games to start a fight the quickest. I remember growing up, I would play Monopoly with my siblings, and typically we'd never get to finish the game. Why? You probably know why. We would end up fighting on who had what, what was going on. You cheated. You did this. You did that. We we couldn't come to terms on what properties we trade, and all of a sudden, we'd end up accusing each other and just bailing on the game. And the list goes on and on of the things that we would do, and I'm sure it's ruined plenty of your Thanksgiving and Christmas, too. Now, if you know Monopoly, you know that a child's dream is to own Boardwalk, the ultimate property. And you knew that the goal was to own Boardwalk because eventually people would land on Boardwalk and you say, pay me my rent, and they'd be out of all their money. 
But see, if you played Monopoly just focusing on acquire the, the smaller properties, the little properties that were easy and quick to acquire, then you'd end up bankrupt. And you'd end up bankrupt because your focus was not on the right things. Because in order to win, you need to be focused on the right things. And perhaps Elizabeth was onto something because if you want to see how quickly money can bring conflict and happiness and division, this afternoon, take some time, play a round of Monopoly. And you'll see it at first hand. Has a way of revealing our corrupt hearts and what we truly value. And so when money comes up, as Christians, we have to ask, what does God have to say about how we steward it? In today's passage, Jesus is going to tell a parable, a parable that he not only is challenging his listeners about their way they think about their money, but he's trying to help us understand what it means to be a good steward with the things that we've been entrusted. And in today's society where putting out content is so easily accessible, do what you're being told what to do with your money all the time, right? As you get on Instagram or TikTok or whatever platform you're on, there's plenty of people telling you what it is you should do with your wealth. And so as Christians, it becomes even more important for us to think through what it means to handle our worth and the, uh, our wealth in a way that's faithful and what Jesus has to say about it. See, Jesus wants to teach us that our money now matters for eternity. That our money now matters for eternity. And if it matters for eternity, then we must follow his guidance and not our own. Amen? So let's dive in. So Jesus, as he so commonly does, tells a parable once again. And it's about a man who's a manager of a household, of this rich man's household. And we're told that the rich man finds out that this manager has been mismanaging his household. He's been wasting his possessions. And so naturally, the rich man comes to the manager and says, yo, what's going on with my money? What's going on over there? And the guy kind of realizes he's been caught in his con and he says, I'm going to be fired, right? And so he goes to these other people that actually owe his master and he starts charging bills. And he does this as a way to gain favor with these rich people as he knows he's probably going to be out of a job here soon. And so he goes out and says, well, how much do you owe my master? Talks to one guy and he starts cutting deals, right? So he says, I owe him 100 measures of oil. And the manager said, hey, just, just do 50. It's all good. And he goes to the other guy and he says, hey, how much do you owe my master? And he says, 100 measures of wheat. And he tells that guy, it's 80. He was charging more for that guy. I don't know why. But he charges him more. And he said, we'll call it a day. And when the master actually hears about this, he doesn't condemn the, the manager. He actually um, commends him and says, he's actually pretty good at this. And what that tells us is that this man didn't necessarily not know how to manage, but rather he was focused on the wrong things. His interests weren't aligned with the interests of the master. Before you go on thinking, yeah, I had a guy who worked for me like that, or 
I knew somebody who worked, he was on my team. He worked like that. He didn't work hard enough. Before you go on thinking that in place of the master, see, Jesus is portrayed as the bread of life. He's portrayed as the giver of life. He's portrayed as the true vine, the good shepherd all throughout the gospels. And occasionally Jesus is portrayed as the master of the house. He does that in Luke 12, again in Luke 14, and he's doing it here once again. So Jesus is actually the master of the house and you're the manager. So let's just get those things straight. And what Jesus is bringing up through this parable is the way in which we should manage our wealth. That as individuals, we're not managing our own wealth, but rather we're managing what God has actually entrusted to us with an opportunity to be faithful. And so in order to do that and be faithful with what he's entrusted us, we need to align our interests with his. See, as Christians, we're called to be good stewards, not only of our wealth, but of our time of our relationships, and the things he's given us. But specifically in this passage, he's challenging the way we think about money. And when it comes to money, some people will respond, well, money's just a man-made concept. Why should I care about money anyways? And my response to you is, it sure is. You're right. But to be indifferent about what we should do with our money when Jesus brings it up over and over again is to be irresponsible. And you can say, ouch, now if it hurts. But it's true. How many of you would consider yourselves to be good drivers? I'm not going to put myself in that group. I'm too distracted, too excited to see what's going on outside to be a good driver. But when we think of stewardship and money, oftentimes we think about it as driving. Some of us will think, no, I'm a a good driver. Look at the signs. I follow the rules. I have a budget I follow. I invest every month. I I got my budget tight. I know exactly what I'm spending money on. I review it each month. I save for retirement. I save for my kids' college. I do this. I do that. And that's cool. Others of you, though, are kind of driving like me. You're looking out the window, seeing what's going on. If a wreck happens, you stop to see what's going on. You buying Starbucks on the way there. Packages are arriving at your steps every door. You don't know where you put that on. And others of you are actually driving and blaming the car, thinking, I just don't I, don't, I don't have a nice car. How am I supposed to drive nice? I don't, ha- I don't have money. Why should I be generous? I don't have to worry about that. That's for the rich people. And so we go on through our lives relating to money, thinking about how we drive or what our car lacks without ever stopping to think where we're going. See, our money shouldn't be viewed as something that's just in the way of things that I have to deal with month after month, nor should it be viewed as this thing that if I can only control it just right, I'll be happy. Church, our money should be viewed instead as an opportunity to bless people around us and expand the kingdom of God. 
And that's exactly why we can be good stewards of the wrong things. See, being good with money or being financially stable doesn't necessarily mean you're being faithful to the stewardship of your possessions. And let me say that again, because I think it hurts. See, being good with money or being financially stable doesn't mean you're faithful. You're a faithful steward of what God has given you. And this is where the gospel tends to turn things upside down. See, the world tells us that if you have a budget, you save, you invest, and you're able to achieve some sort of financial independence, then you're better than anyone else, and you're just a responsible adult. But if you pay attention to what Jesus is saying in this passage, you notice he calls us to spend money in light of eternity. And that's different to what you see on Instagram. That's why in verse 9, he tells us to use our worldly wealth to gain friends so that when our money is gone, we should be welcome in the eternal dwellings by those whom our money has blessed. And if our money should be viewed in light of eternity, that means that what we do with our money, what we do with our wealth shouldn't be determined by the latest Forbes magazine, but rather by Jesus' example that while he was still rich, he became poor for you. That through his poverty, you may become rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. See, church, Jesus' example teaches us that to, the way to be wealthy is actually the opposite of what the world teaches. The world teaches, hey, gather up as much as you can. Get as much as you can for yourself. Invest it so you can get some more. But what Jesus is saying, hey, is the, the way we grow in wealth is actually through generosity. And those are opposite messages. That through our generosity, we have an opportunity to join God in his mission and experience the joy that comes from seeing God using our resources that he's entrusted us with for the expansion of his kingdom. And if he's entrusted us with resources on this side of heaven then that means our money habits matter. Look with me at verse 10. It says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth or the wealth of this earth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? See, Jesus is teaching us that in these verses that the way we manage the little thing actually reveals who we are. The way we manage our wealth here reveals what we believe in. That the way we go about our lives reveals our character as well. And we'll see later on in this passage how character matters when it comes to our money and our generosity. But we should be good stewards of what God has given us. And these verses point to the reality that if we can't be trusted with the little resources he's given us on this side of heaven, then why should we expect him to entrust us with the heavenly riches? 
That's exactly what 2 Corinthians 5, if you read verse 9, is talking about. See, he says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Church, this teaches us that the way in which we live on this side of heaven actually has an impact in the rest of eternity. Which means if you want to take a temperature on how faithful your stewardship is, then you have to evaluate your habits. Because our habits tend to reveal what we truly value. Which means if you want to understand what you value when it comes to money, a good question to ask is, how am I spending my money? Or if you want to go a bit deeper, maybe ask, does my spending show I'm a citizen of heaven? Because church, if you believe that this life is not the only life and there's a life to come, then the way in which we spend the money, the way in which we steward our resources as Christians should show that we think there's another life. What we've been entrusted us to show that there is a hope that isn't set on how much we can gather here on earth, but rather on the riches of Christ in Jesus, and that we have joined God's invitation towards the mission of God and the expansion of his kingdom here on earth. That the little or much that we've been given, we should surrender before him and his kingdom, not ours. See, how we, ma- how we trust God in the little ultimately reveals how, how we'll trust God in the much. Oftentimes we think, yeah, I'll be generous uh, when I get a little more money. I'll be generous when my situation changes. Maybe when I get that promotion, then I can be generous to God. But see, to live generous lives means that we trust God in the little, knowing that he'll provide. And to do the opposite is to say, hey, I'm better off just managing these little things and trusting in my way. I can actually manage these things rather than trusting the God who provides. That's why Matthew 6, he says, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or your drink or or, or your body or what you'll wear. Is not life more than food, the body, more than clothes? And he says, look at the birds. Look at the birds in the air. They neither sow nor reap, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And he says, are you not of more value than this? See, when we give, we're saying, Jesus, I trust that you'll take care of me no matter what comes my way. And when we give, we're ultimately testifying that what we have is his, not ours. See, our money has a way of twisting our reality. That's why at the end of the section, Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. And he says this in other parts in scripture as well. And the reason is our view of money is often twisted because money has a way of purchasing access to very nice experiences. Money has a way, the material things has a way of making us really comfortable in life. 
And through it, it has a way of seducing us into thinking that if I have enough of it, I can just have enough safety, I can have enough security, and I can have enough happiness to be fine here on earth. And the tangible nature of it leads us to believe that if I have money, then I don't need anyone else. I don't need to be dependent on anyone else. I don't need to depend on an employer. I don't need to depend on my parents. I don't need to depend on anyone else. And for that very same reason, money makes a powerful competitor to God. We don't need God if we have money. We can trick ourselves into believing that it will satisfy everything that God is meant to satisfy himself. And that's why it says you can't serve God in money. See, we either set our affections on worldly things, worldly possessions. We either build our kingdom here on earth or we're talking about building a kingdom in heaven. And oftentimes we're quick to say, let's build this kingdom of heaven while we're acting over here like I'm just building my own kingdom. But our love for God should lead us to obedience. Obedience to his word. See, if we say we love God, then that means we don't get to determine how we live our lives or how we spend our money. But instead, we look at the scriptures to inform how we are to live. The Pharisees somehow now made it back into the picture once again, and they actually ridiculed Jesus for the parable he tells, and not a good idea, but they do it over and over again now, mocking Jesus for the parable that he told. But what they don't realize is that Jesus actually knew their heart. He knows their love for money. He knows how they've turned the temple into a business. And you'll see even Jesus confronting their beliefs in marriage. When you go, what what is he talking about at the end? He's confronting their beliefs on marriage, saying, hey, if you believe me, you you believe on the word of God, then you've got to follow the word of God. You can't make up your own stuff. You don't get to determine what you think about it. The scriptures do it, and they're very clear. And Jesus confronts them once again, pointing out their hypocrisy and how he knows their heart. And here's the deal, church, just like Jesus confronted the Pharisees telling him that he knew their heart, Jesus knows your heart too. You can't fool Jesus. And many of us will often use this phrase of, he knows my heart, as a way to excuse obedience in Jesus. Oh, I'm not generous, but he knows my heart. Oh, I won't do this, but he knows my heart. Oh, I I won't follow him. I'm not ready to give that part of my life, but he knows my heart. And him knowing your heart isn't a good thing in scriptures. It's no bueno once Jesus knows your heart. He knows what's going on in there. See, as Christians, God should have the final say on how we live and what we do with our money, not you. And to live in obedience to God as it relates to our money is to live lives full of generosity. So when we step into God's invitation to live generous lives, we get to remind ourselves that he is the one that provides, not us. And more than that, we are telling the watching world that God has been generous to us. See, oftentimes our generosity is more about us than others. 
We give to be able to tell people about this cool nonprofit that I give to or this cool entity that happens to be aligned with my passions and my projects, but I give to it and I can tell other people about it. Now, I'm not saying stop giving to the nonprofits. You do your thing, right? Give to whatever you want to give. But as Christians, giving should be about the kingdom of God and our eternal hope. And so if you're a child of God, our generosity should look wildly different than the generosity of my neighbor. That as Christians, I've been called to give myself away for the expansion of the kingdom of God. And one of the ways in which we do that is through this idea of tithing. And many churches have shied away from talking about tithing or giving because of the negative impact a lot of churches have had where they've benefited from the gifts and the giving of people for their own wealth and promotion. But see, this idea of tithing is an Old Testament idea where people were required under law to give a certain percentage of their income for the use of the temple and feasts and giving to the poor. And this percentage could often represent even 25% of their income. And so you might be asking, am I supposed to do that? And my answer is not necessarily. Okay, Jesus has fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it through Christ, right? But what the New Testament teaches us about giving is that we are to give sacrificially. And giving sacrificially is actually a stronger calling than tithing because to give sacrificially means that I give not out of my leftovers, but I give and then trust God with the rest. So to give sacrificially means that I am entrusting Trusting God with what he will provide for me. In church, there is something powerful when you trust God with your provision and you give towards the mission of God. Church, this church itself is a testament of what it means for faithful believers to say, hey, there is this vision of planting a church in Birmingham, Alabama, and we're going to give to it. And you get to benefit from it. We get this beautiful community of disciples who belong to Jesus and seek the good of Birmingham. Why? Because someone gave. See, there's something beautiful that happens when we join God in his mission through our generosity. How many of you, if, if Warren Buffett, the great entrepreneur, the inventor of the computer, came in, right? He comes in and says, hey, I got an opportunity for you to invest. You'd be like, Where do I put my money? But when it comes to God, he sometimes says, hey, here's my mission. Here's the kingdom of God. And we go, maybe when I get the promotion. See, church, when we lack generosity, Jesus isn't worried. Jesus don't need your money. Jesus doesn't need you to give to be able to accomplish his mission on earth or to be able to establish his kingdom. He doesn't need your money. But when you don't give, when you're not generous to those around you, you actually miss out. 
You're like missing out on the angel investor. We're missing out on participating on this beautiful vision and mission of God that he's saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and creating this beautiful multi-ethnic church of Jesus where we'll worship him together. So an invitation to generosity shouldn't come out of obligation, but rather this joy that we know we get to join God in his mission. I don't have to give. I get to give. I get to give because Jesus has extended that invitation to me and I get to be a part of things. It's a get, not a have. So how do we practically grow in our generosity? See, generosity is a a journey, a journey we all have to take. And you might be in different parts of this journey. And it's not something you can just change overnight. See, generosity is a posture of the heart that needs to change that then will have actions tied to it. And so this week, I want to invite you to do a couple things. When it comes to your generosity and when it comes to taking the temperature on how faithful am I being with the things that God has entrusted to me. And I pledge to do this myself, okay? You with me? Read the scriptures. Learn what God has to say about money. And I'm going to suggest a couple passages you can write down as a way to start learning about what it means to be generous. And the first is Matthew 6, where Jesus is teaching about what it means to give generously and what it means to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And secondly, 2 Corinthians 9, Jesus talks about being a tearful giver. And this posture we are to have when we give. And so write them down. Take your time. Read those passages. And ask God to convict your heart. Here's the deal. We can all grow in generosity. Whether you're already giving, you don't give anything, whether you give a lot, a little, it doesn't matter. We can all grow in our posture to generosity. And there's an invitation from Jesus to use our wealth, to use our possessions in a generous way. The second thing I want you to do is to evaluate your spending. Evaluate the way you spend money. And for some of you, it may be taking a second And writing down everything you make, writing down everything you spend, and creating a little budget. I invite you, if that's not your your natural posture, find a friend, right? There are plenty of people who love the little spreadsheets. They got the custom stuff that forecasts your spending, all this stuff in Excel. Plenty of resources there, but ask a friend. Ask a friend to help. With this, there's also a class coming in the spring that you can sign up that teaches on financial literacy and also how we should view our money in light of God's kingdom from a Christian perspective. But for others of us, it might mean just reprioritizing the way we spend money. Maybe it's just printing out a bank statement and going through it and saying, what do I value? And it's a tough pill to swallow, but 
when we step into God's generosity, we step into his invitation to expand the kingdom of God. And so if we say we want that, this is a good way for us to practice that. And lastly, after doing those things, I want to just ask you to pray. Pray before God, asking God, how can I grow in generosity? See, generosity is hard, but when we understand how God has been generous to us, it becomes easy. If God's given you everything, why, would I, why wouldn't I give back? And so ask God, what are the things in my life that need a change in order to join you and your mission with joy? Because God desires a cheerful giver. And church, the, our generosity is a way to bless those around us. And it's a way to tell a watching world that God has been generous to us. And that's exactly why our money now matters for eternity. That although it has little importance, it has a ton of significance. That we can give generously because God has been generous to us. That I get to give because God has been generous to us. God doesn't need my money, but I get to give for the expansion of his kingdom, for the good of Birmingham, for the good of those around me, for the proclamation of the gospel among the nations. I get to join in that. And if I believe that there's a life to come, then I want to put all my money in that. Amen? Church, we can give generously because God has been, given, been good to us, because God has been generous to us.